today. I've had so much coffee, I'm shaking. Yeah, yeah I keep seeing. I've been drinking it for like the last three hours. <laughs> you got three hours of coffee. She's doing all the driving. Mm-hmm. Negative. That was a 10-cup pot. <laughs> it was a 10-cup. Oh, my God. Warren, how much <laughs> coffee did you have? One cup. I had one cup. That was me. You had eight <laughs> cups of coffee? I mean, no, I had, I think Chris <clears throat> and Kim might have. Oh, okay. No, Kim doesn't. I don't know. I had a lot of coffee. I think Mark had some, too, so. <laughs> I don't I think you but Once mostly I they had the Lux Deluxe Hazelnut Creamer here, I was like, let's do this. Welcome to another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Brecken. And we have an exciting episode today. We are coming at you live. Well, I guess not live, but pre-recorded from the Montana Sapphire Mine, uh, the Rock Creek Mine. And we are here today with Warren Boyd. Hi, Warren. Hi. Hi, Brecken. (laughs) Hi, Jonathan. (laughs) And he has, we've spent about two days with Warren, kind of traversing the beautiful hills of Montana here, right outside of Phillipsburg, and getting to see the operation. Uh, We just started carrying Montana Sapphire probably January of this year. Yep. And uh, wanted to come up here and get a closer look at the operation and see how things were were going. So, Warren, you want to give us a little background of how you got to here? Who are you? Who are you without without it being an, an hour or long episode, which I know it could be with all the projects you've done, but just a, just a brief synopsis. Well, I'm a geologist, amongst other things. I'm also a gemologist. Uh, my interest has always been colored gemstone mining and diamond mining operations. I've been involved in, in that in Canada, uh, Brazil, Colombia, uh, the United States, and elsewhere in the world, in Russia specifically. And... Um, this is one of the best projects I think I've worked on in my career. And why is that? Well, it's such a wonderful project, and we don't have a, a difficult government to work with here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the environmental regulations are the the, the, the ones that I, I sympathize with and empathize with. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is an incredible resource of sapphires. And how did you get involved in this particular project? Well, about 20 years ago, I was here briefly as a, as a consultant, a geological consultant working for a mining engineering firm, and we were doing some due diligence on the project for another company that uh, was working in here, and I was really impressed with what happened here and what was occurring here. So uh, I had that stuffed in the back of my mind, and uh, when the opportunity presented itself, we leaped. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so how long has Potentate been mining, actively mining this area? Well, Potentate is not a new company. It was created in 2007, but mostly as a holding company, holding a few small assets in different parts of the, the U.S. And, uh, but uh, the acquisition of the ground here is in two stages. We acquired a small piece of ground in 2011 and the major piece of ground in 2014. And we've just recently this year acquired another piece of ground, which uh, is in between in size. Yeah. Jonathan and I have been to mines all over the world. And I have to say the operation that you guys run here is exceptional. I was super impressed with 
Yeah, just both from the organization side, the technology side, the environmental side. Um, I think all those factors kind of come together for this to be the the well the best run mine that we've ever seen. Yeah, and and that's why we're so excited about Montana Sapphire. Yeah, is that not only is it a beautiful gemstone in its own, but it's also responsible. And you guys are taking the steps to make sure that it's ethically mined, responsibly mined and environmentally consciously mined. And so the one thing that I thought was so interesting that I'd never seen in another in another mine was your water clarification system. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, uh, thank you, Johnson, for the kind words about what you're seeing here. We appreciate the, uh, the, the, the perspective that a third party has in, in the work we're doing because sometimes we get frustrated and uh, dealing with the day-to-day operations. And uh, uh, it's a big coordinated task doing it. Now, with regard to water clarification, I think we're the only operation in the world in sapphire mining that uses uh, water clarification technology. And what is that? Well, uh, water clarification is uh, it's a big piece of equipment about the size of a school bus where mucky, dirty water goes in and clean water looking like drinking water comes out. Yeah, I got to stand on top of it. It yeah. was pretty tall. And, and <laughs> what... I did. I had a photo up on top of it. And why is it so important in this particular situation and in this particular setting? Well, uh, there's two, it's twofold. Uh, one, environmentally, uh, we're not having to release muddy water into the uh, creeks and the drainage systems in the area. Secondly, we recycle the water because we're working on the top of the mountain where water is always a challenge, especially during the summer months when our key, key production is happening. So consequently... Um, uh, we recycle the water not only for production purposes, but for environmental purposes. Because Rock Creek is one of the creeks that's nearby, and it's a world-class fishing destination for fly fishermen from all over North America and Canada. And as far as for the clarification for the production side, why is that important? Why can't you just run the same water right back through again? Well, uh, when uh, suspended solids get in the water, it changes the density of the water. And if the water is too dense, it causes the sapphires to drift in our jigs and we lose them. Ah, and we don't want to lose sapphires, obviously. No, no, we want to save them for you. (laughs) Yes, please. All the sapphires you can. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So another thing that was so interesting to me was the amount of sapphire that we found yesterday when we were digging through the jig i i've never seen cleanouts that were so were so uh productive i guess you would say why is that uh because we knew you were coming (laughs) (laughs) oh so you're saying it was salted (laughs) it was staged it was all staged no we we did a clean out a two-day run mm-hmm. normally we clean out after each shift mm-hmm. okay. uh, this particular one we ran a short shift the day before and we decided not to clean it out that that day and uh save it for a, a significant clean out when, when you arrived were right because uh, we weren't quite sure uh you know when you're running a mining operation there's always things that are unpredictable that can go wrong as we encountered we had a small glitch and so we were forced to shut down an hour early but we still got good uh, sapphire recovery Uh, Like any processing facility, um, it's uh, probably working 80% of the time and 20% of the time in maintenance or fixing this or fixing that glitch. Yesterday, uh, rocks had gone through a steel plate, right? Well, uh, I misunderstood at first. Uh, What happened is we have a a drainage pipe uh, where the uh, uh, waste rocks and sand had 
perforated a plastic drainage pipe. Oh, okay. So we had to replace that plastic drainage pipe. Yeah, yeah it happens. It does, yes. And we don't want to waste the water, first of all, so we shut it down and we replace the pipe. So it'll be operating after the weekend is over and everybody's back to work. Yeah. So tell us about the percentage, the, the size of rough that you typically uh, retrieve here. Well, Rock Creek, uh, uh, the resource here is prolific. Uh, there are a lot of sapphires here, but not too many that are bigger. Um, so even though it's impressive uh, when we're seeing the cleanout, I would say only about 80% of the stones that we're picking are ones that were of sufficient size to cut and facet. And so when we talk about sufficient size to cut and facet, what it, to, the, to the general consumer, and, and when we're talking carat size or millimeter size, what size is that? Well, I say a, five, a cut stone of five millimeter, five and a half millimeters, about uh, oh, three quarters of a half a carat, and about six millimeters, about one carat, uh, assuming it's round. Our rough uh, size, very few pieces of rough exceed eight millimeter in size. So consequently, the bulk of the stones produced here would cut gemstones in the range of one half carat to one and a half carats. Mm-hmm. But still, I mean, that's that's great. Nice, size. nice size. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 nice size for jewelry, which is what yeah, we do with it. <laughs> so that that works out well. But uh, so as far as when you get the the run of production, what, what how does that break down size wise? Well, uh, I classify all the rough that we recovered according to size fractions between uh, depending that's that's driven by the sizes of the sieves we use. So we use sieves from uh, approximately three and a half millimeter to four and a half millimeter. And about 70% of our production is in that size. And then between four and a half millimeter and five and a half millimeter, we get about 16% of our production. And between five and a half millimeter and six and a half millimeter, we get about 8% of our production. And between six and a half and eight millimeter, we get about 4% of our production. Okay. So and and these are all talking in in the the rough size and That's then and then what's an average percentage would you say from the rough to a cut stone what percent do you actually retain? Well, um, it depends on how good the cutter is and sure. how skilled he is. <laughs> sure, uh, but some on- cutters uh, get very very poor yields and some cutters get very good yields. But on average, of our clients who've been polite enough and kind enough to share their results with us, they average between twenty five to thirty eight percent. So when you run those percentages down, what you're actually ending up with, with that 70% that you said were in the three and a half to four and a half millimeter rough, you're getting cut stones that would be in the one to three millimeter? Yes. In that size fraction, uh, the, the largest volume of what we produce would produce polished stones in the two millimeter up to, say, four millimeter range. So two to four millimeter is yeah. 70% of the production. That's correct. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's where that's where it, you, you start looking at when you you're talking. You get some nice one carat stones and one and a half and so forth. But when you talk about seventy percent of the production is under four millimeter, four millimeter it's it, it 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 leads itself to a lot of clusters and rows and things like that that are that are using multiple stones to create a piece of jewelry. Yeah, one thing that I found super interesting coming here is a lot of the places that we've been to. Uh, go visit gem mines, you know, Africa, Australia, Thailand, Cambodia, they all seem very exotic. This feels like home. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are about four hours, four and a half hours drive from 
yeah. from our office, yeah, which feel- is the other cool thing about this is that it is in our backyard. And one of the reasons that we not only are the sapphires beautiful and we like the operation, we like the idea of it being an American gemstone, but it is literally in our backyard. It feels like I'm at summer camp. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Warren, Warren was nice enough to just basically let us play. We got to play, and we we've just come in from playing in sapphires. We were picking, is what you call it. And so what they do is, they when they remove it from the jig, they bring it back here and sort everything. Sort by size. Sort by size, and and so you're picking through gravel and everything. And it was just you could do it all day. It was almost like meditative. And we'll release some. We'll we'll, we'll put out a blog with pictures and videos and stuff, so you can kind of see what the area looks like and what how what the picking looks like and what the machinery looks like to give you a little bit more. Yeah, as far as the place to mine gemstones, this has probably got to be one of the most beautiful with the big skies, the big blue skies, and the tall green trees. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What you forgot to mention is we're only twenty minutes from a hamburger. That's true. <laughs> that is true. That is true. That is true. And you don't have to stay on the path to avoid mines. Yeah. <laughs> no landmines here. The only landmines you encounter here are the uh, the cows. the cow type the cow type. The cow type. <laughs> Speaking of cows, yeah, uh, we have uh, uh, quite an extensive acreage of ground, approximately three and a half thousand acres, and uh, the Black Angus free range beef roams freely across our property. Thankfully, they're not eating the sapphires. Yes, but they are leaving fertilizer that helps with the grass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no. so that's probably something we want to talk about as well. Is is so, the reclamation of the land? Not only what you're, because you're not only reclamating what you're digging up, but also the first sapphires were mined here in the 1890s. So there's there's a lot of ground to be reclamated. That was never done. that was never done by you. <clears throat> that's correct. Uh, um, the uh, this the. This, the discovery of this mine was actually 1892 when the first newspaper report that I could find came out about it. And, uh, but the serious mining didn't commence until about 1901 to about 1935 by a company called American Gem Syndicate. And uh, believe it or not, they were mining most of the sapphires here for industrial applications, Swiss watch movements, and the bulk of the stones were being shipped to, to the Gubelin Laboratories in Switzerland at that time. And they would take the big sapphires, which they didn't want, and break them up. Uh, because oh. they needed them for jewel movements. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, they realized, they, they realized the significance of the bright, nice pinks and the mm-hmm. nice blues when they did come, which were very rare, and they'd set those aside. But uh, the primary driving mechanism was the Swiss watch movement and, at that time. And in that eight, 1890s, 1900, the, with the Gem Syndicate, uh, from the 1900s to 1935, what is the estimate of the amount of production that was taken out of this area? Well, that's actually been the. It was well documented, and uh, uh, Berg, the uh, Montana government geologist, researched it and prepared a paper and stated that at that time frame, up till cumulatively up till 2014, over 65.8 tons of sapphire were recovered from this area, which sounds impressive. But remember that they were collecting the tiny stones, which we would normally not consider cuttables, and uh, including those in the counts, but also the big stones. But they also didn't have a lot of the equipment to get the very smallest things either, right? So there's a there's a bit of the the loss. Their loss was quite great because you're going back now and re-sifting their piles and finding plenty of sapphire. Oh, yes, yes. The technology has advanced uh, substantially. The old technique for mining here was called hydraulic mining, which is, if, in essence, like fire hoses. Yep. But they depended on gravity feed to get the water pressure called a hydraulic head. 
And uh, so consequently, they only moved partway up the hills. But because they were mining uh, these high-energy slurries, uh, they missed a lot of sapphires and uh, left them behind. Yeah, it's amazing that that much came out with that low technology. And so it's very interesting what will happen now that you've been in full production now for what? So this is your third season, fourth season? Uh, we did some uh, test mining in 2014, but our first production was season was 2015. Um, 16, 17, 18, and now 19. Okay. The thing that I found pretty interesting, too, was that you only mine five acres at a time. You're only a, a basically allowed to mine, actively mine five acres at a time. And that's, that's a regulation. Due yes, to, yeah. yes, that's correct, Brecken. Uh, we operate under what's called a small miner's exclusion permit which allows us to disturb no more than five acres of ground at a time. And if we start to exceed that five acres, we have to rehabilitate areas we've uh, disturbed. Mm -hmm. And what's rehabilitation? We grade it flat with the bulldozers. We replace the topsoil that we've removed. And then we put the uh, uh, vegetative slash, which is the organics, mm -hmm. and we put that on top. And then we take our little ATVs with grass seeders mm -hmm. and run across there and seed it. Yeah, I'm coming up to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to ride ATV across. <laughs> and seed, seed, seed some land. land. There you like go. Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> And so then is it the slash and such that will release to, to, to regrow the trees or are you really just trying to get just the grasses to grow back? Well, uh, the slash is, uh, it, it prevents any erosion. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. It stops the water from uh, flowing quickly if, if it's on a slope, for instance, mm -hmm. and it just breaks the flow so you don't get uh, rutting and erosion and it keeps the seed in place from blowing away. Okay. I like it because it keeps the... I mean, the, like the atmosphere, but nice. Only, mm -hmm. only five acres are allowed to be mined, and then you can, and then you reclaim. And so it's not like a, a huge pit, you know, which, which I appreciate coming up here. Yeah, yeah, it still keeps the, the, what's beautiful is still beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and the history, too, really got me. I, I, I knew sapphire was discovered here in the early 1900s, but actually coming here and saying, Hey, this old log house was built in 1901, and it's where it's where the miners lived. It it really kind of put it into perspective for me, and I thought, my gosh, the history here is just insane. Yeah, yeah. you don't you don't think about stuff like that, and and uh, I don't know, I really appreciate it more. I think one cavern still had two of the bad frames in it. Yeah. Yes, yes, that was the honeymoon suite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I got to walk in that cabin. We have some cool pictures of the old cabins too that we'll we'll put up. And they typically mined the gullies, which is not what you're actively mining right now. Yes, the old timers uh, believed that sapphires could only be found in the creeks, and that all the sapphires that occurred in 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 our deposit were related to the rivers. Um, conversely, what we're doing is we're mining actually on the top of the mountain, well away from the gullies. And we're mining the original weathered bedrocks, which contain a substantial quantity of sapphires. So what we're doing is we're actually uh, stripping the uh, surface gravel sitting on top of the, uh, of, the, of the hill, which no more than about 15 feet deep, and then uh, refilling those uh, trenches and holes that we dig after the fact. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, we're, we're, we're not mining river gravels. We're mining weathered debris flows is what a geologist would call it. Yeah, and so you, we, I assumed it was alluvial. 
because you haven't found the bedrock, the host rock, but it's not alluvial. Yes, uh, geologists uh, don't refer to the deposit we're working on as alluvial. They refer to it as alluvium with an E, mm-hmm. which means it's only um, soils that have been uh, transported downslope. Um, but uh, more specifically, we're looking at mud flows, debris mm-hmm. flows. Uh, so they're unsorted uh, layers pancaked on top of one another that are, are completely unstratified, like you'd have in an, an, envi- in an alluvial environment. They're uh, randomly sorted angular boulders, and the sapphires are all within that layer, like raisins at a pudding. Yeah. And you said in, in one of the, the videos you did, I, I heard you say that this area was geologically different than most other sapphire mines throughout the world. Can you explain why that is? Uh, that's correct. Uh, most of the known sapphire mines that we're aware of in the in the world occur in basaltic flows, uh, like the Shandong sapphire occurrences in China, the uh, the Australian uh, sapphire occurrences, uh, the occurrences of sapphires in in um, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, are just examples of basaltic flows. Um, and uh, these basaltic flows have produced different look of diamonds. What we're probably dealing with is, even though we haven't found them in bedrock yet, we're pretty sure the sapphires have been brought to the surface by a, a, a rock type called a lamproite. Mm-hmm. And uh, we say that because the occurrences elsewhere in Montana of the sapphires occur in lamproite. So we're speculating that our host rock is a lamproite which has intruded the bedrocks of the area we're working and then been subsequently weathered away and we're thus mining that weathered rock. Yeah, the interesting thing too about your operation that I noticed is that you are looking at historical data, you're talking to the old timers, you're, you're, you're gaining knowledge from them, but in addition to that, you're also using science and modern science and geophysics to kind of look at the area and say, hey, this spot looks good, this spot looks good. And a lot of sampling. I mean, how, how many how many sample pits have you have you dug at this point in time? I believe we're we're over two hundred sample pits that we've dug over our property. And the strangest thing about it is the fact that every sample pit had at least uh, some sapphires in it, some more than others. So we're using the ones where we got the higher grade results as a focus for our mining. Yeah, and I guess that's exciting too. That that this isn't just a, a short term thing in the foreseeable future there's going to be rock creek sapphire montana sapphire for years to come yes uh i confidently say that this will outlive me for sure really i mean which is pretty which which is is pretty pretty amazing because for colored gemstones yeah for colored gemstones a lot of times people are saying well we don't really know how long a mine will last we don't know this we don't know that it's like you have so much more knowledge because you've actually done the work to find out is that and that makes it really interesting and also makes it really good for us as a jewelry manufacturer to say hey this is worth this, this is, is worth this is a project worth getting behind because it, it has longevity it's mm-hmm. not something that's just a flash in the pan yeah exactly yeah that's so correct uh, i mean um first of all the way we've designed our processing operation it's scalable like if we wish to increase our production we can if we want to cut it back we can um because uh, we own the property, we're not under pressures to pay commissions or lease payments to landowners. We own it outright, and the only thing we apply for in addition to our private property is the small miners' exclusion permits. Mm-hmm. The one question we always ask everybody is, what is your first memory of either 
gemstone or jewelry in your life? And then not only what your first memory is, but then following up with that, what's the thing that first made you impassioned for it? Well, I think you and I share a similar history in the fact that uh, I started my career uh, when my dad and mom emigrated to Canada towing us little kids along back in the 50s. And uh, my dad couldn't get his money out of Australia, and he'd sold his dental practice there and started selling opals. So our our career started in opals, just like your career started in opals. Yeah. Crazy. So, so what? What is that very first specific? Was there, is there one specific stone, or one specific instance, or experience, or a piece that your mother had, or that your dad that really, really triggers those memories about gemstones? I remember going to the train stations with dad and picking up bagfuls of rough opal from that Australia. we that we brought in from Australia back in the late fifties and early sixties. Wow, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Now you also have a twin. Yes, I have a twin. Yeah, we I knew we liked you for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing we have in common. Yeah, yeah. I'm a twin and you have twin daughters. Yeah, yeah. and your brother is also involved. Uh, well, he's not involved in the With, sapphire yeah, operation, but, but he is involved in uh, exploration for gem deposits. Mm-hmm. He's been behind Diamond Discoveries in Canada. Yeah, so he finds them and then you mine them, right? Well, he finds them, and I either value them because I can't afford to own a diamond yeah. mine, <laughs> but I can afford to be involved in a sapphire mine. Yeah. Okay. And so how long do you typically spend on site here in Montana? Well, I like to come here and host uh, our guests who uh, come from different parts of the globe, mm-hmm. across North America, Canada, and uh, overseas. And so I come three or four times in the season. I've been here currently about three weeks because we've had a series of guests uh, from all over the globe over the last few weeks. And uh, so I get to go home in a few days. Yeah, that'll be nice. Back to Canada. Yes, that's right. That's great. And when's your next trip here? In a few weeks? or you? you well, I think that depends, <laughs> uh, that depends on production and yeah. whether I have a client who says, I want to come. Are you available next week? Yeah. So I, I would be for yeah. them. Yes. That's great. Warren, this is going to be a tough question. You started in opals, you, you've done diamonds, you're in sapphires now. What is your favorite gemstone? That's a hard question, Brecken. Uh, I would say... <laughs> I know, it's hard for me too. Because of my, my career and what's, uh, what I'm involved in right now and the reason you're here, I would have to say it's sapphire because uh, I, I'm literally uh, working with millions of carats of sapphire in a yeah. season preparing them for cutting polishing sales is rough and uh um sapphire is by far one of the most important influences in my life now but in my early years it was opals Mm -hmm. and uh but i've also been doing government diamond valuation work since 1998 so i get to see millions and millions of carats of diamonds all the time yeah so you just you know you don't have to pick one i i can't pick one i like them all i'll take them all (laughs) That's a good answer, yeah. Brecken. Yeah, she would. Like yeah. yeah, and has. <laughs> that's one thing that we really didn't cover either was the way that you sort the rough, because there there is a difference in how uh, Rock Creek Sapphire is versus the other sapphire deposits within the state of Montana. So Yogo is typic- It's found in its host rock, and typically doesn't need to be heat treated, but the crystals are very small or flat, so your yield is very small. And then you have your Missouri River, which typically has larger crystals, but doesn't take heat treatment very well. 
And so if it's a little off color, it, you know, you, you're stuck with it. And then there's Rock Creek, which does accept heat treatment quite well, where you'll get some of those beautiful blues and teal colors through that. But then there's also material here that doesn't need to be heat treated. That's correct. Uh, each deposit in Montana has its own characteristics. Uh, you're correct. The Yogo stones are some of the most beautiful uh, sapphires produced uh, in America. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if there's anything against it, it's uh, the fact that the stones are small, the crystals are flat, so you don't get traditional round brilliant cuts yeah. regularly. And it's extremely difficult to mine. Uh, it's, it's difficult to mine, um, and it's hard rock, and it's deep. Mm -hmm. And so it, it faces a, a whole set of challenges we are not faced with yep. here at Rock Creek. Uh, Missouri River uh, produces a, a lower average grade uh, per per cubic yard of gravel, and it produces on on average larger stones. Uh, but you're correct in the fact that it doesn't respond well to heat treatment. So what you see is what you get. Uh, Rock Creek is uh, surprising in the fact that some stones are rather boring looking when uh -huh. you look at them. Uh, you give them a little bit of heat and they turn into spectacular gems. Yeah. Like, uh, it's uh, Gouda, or you, what do you call it? Uh, well, uh, there's different terms for it, but there is a, a type of sapphire uh, called diesel. Mm -hmm. And the best way to explain the color is to imagine you dropping two, a couple of drops of milk in water. Mm -hmm. and you get that foggy white appearance yep. in your um, milk. And that's what the Sri Lanka is called diesel, mm -hmm. uh, what others might call Gouda. Uh, but uh, Gyoda, the not Gouda. Sorry, <laughs> Gouda. She's hungry. She must be hungry. Yeah. Yeah. De definitely not a cheese. <laughs> and uh, what it is is titanium um, um, is incorporated in the crystallographic matrix in the in the form of uh, rutile. Mm -hmm. And when the heat treatment releases that titanium into the crystallographic matrix. Um, it causes the stones to turn blue and the clarity within the stone to improve. Yeah, I, and I found I find it so interesting that within one state, within one geographic region, you have three very different sapphire deposits. That's true. Um, but what they do seem to have in common is the host rocks. Yeah, the, the lamprolite. The lamprolite, yes. Lamprolite. Yeah, yeah. All right. There we go. You got it. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Pizza is Gouda with a little bit of Gouda. <laughs> no, that's mozzarella. <laughs> In my past life, I was uh, I worked for a science museum, and I would go out and do these shows for kids. And I was chef provolone, and I had to do a pretend uh, like cooking show, and that was one of my jokes. And none of the kids got it because I don't think kids know what know what Gouda cheese is. <laughs> Not in Kentucky <laughs> <laughs> or Ohio. Or Ohio, yeah. Well, we want to thank you so much for sitting down with us and taking the time today, and and to your whole team. I know they they worked late yesterday for us to come, and we really really appreciate the time that you took to spend with us. Yeah. Oh, it's been an honor to have you here, and uh, I'm really pleased uh, that you're so excited about Rock Creek Sapphires. Yeah, we love it. Just wait. My mind is, like, spinning right now. I'm, I'm With all kinds of ideas. Her design juices are flowing. Yeah. So, again, thank you so much, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Brecken. And I'm Jonathan. And if you want to see what we do in our real life, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Parlay Gems. And Warren, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Brecken. Bye, guys. Bye.